Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm speaking in this current sermon series entitled Christ and Culture on the subject of marriage. I know a lot about marriage. It's not just because I'm married. I've conducted over 70 weddings. I'm getting really good at it. I think I have the whole liturgy memorized. I, I know my routines in terms of premarital counseling. I enjoy meeting with the couples, getting to know them, and then really digging into marital material. But I especially love two moments on the wedding day itself. The first is the wedding liturgy, to see the bride and the groom as they are staring at one another so dreamily and even nauseatingly, but it's cute. Uh, And and also the the first dance, the dance between husband and wife, uh, no matter how much they rehearse it, and some do in a rather odd way. They, they, They have these furious little rehearsals with each other to make sure that their first dance is really incredible. But it's still clumsy, and it's weird, and, but it's beautiful. For me, the liturgy and the dance point out the fact that the bride and groom, who are uh, through uh, smiles and tears saying their vows and through awkward steps taking their dance, are part of a much larger and grander cosmic narrative than even they realize. It's a sampling of something that is quite divine, quite heavenly in orientation. I want to address the dance that is marriage. I know that the whole subject of marriage right now is complex and controversial, but by the way, that is not new. Marriage has been complex and controversial for a very, very long time because societies have endorsed a variety of forms of marriage from monogamy to monogamy with an asterisk, uh, meaning concubines or mistresses on the side. There's, of course, a polygamy made famous by Sister Wives, the program Sister Wives, where this Mormon gentleman is married to four different women. I think it's four. Maybe it's five now. I don't know. I haven't watched it in a while. And, uh, and the main character says at the opening credits, do you remember it? Love should be multiplied, not divided. I mean, isn't that nice in its own way? Uh, <laughs> You know, in 2015, the United States, uh, through the Supreme Court, voted to accept same-gender marriage. And now there's a growing interest in what's called polyamory, which is a a more organic situation in which uh, lots of people are are connected intimately. And uh, there are some churches, in fact, very few, but some, including those gathered at Episcopal Divinity School, who are promoting the blessing rights of polyamorous marriage. But also, the understanding that society has regarding the purpose of marriage has varied through the centuries. If you read Justice Kennedy's report about the 2015 decision, he has defined marriage as a mere love contract or an affection contract between any two people. Some people get married for financial reasons. Some people get married for pressure reasons. But there are all sorts of reasons that people do go through some sort of marital right. But I think it's important for Christians to consider our own texts, to consider our own understanding of what marriage is and what it's not. 
And we have historically confessed that marriage is a covenant. We believe that it's a covenant that hails back to the earliest days of creation in which a man and a woman pledge to love and be faithful to one another until death parts them. And it is, I want to suggest today, a glimpse of the eternal dance. And so I'm going to speak today about the dance and the dancers. But first, the dance. Marriage is the message of the Bible. Marriage is the message of the Bible. Uh, The dance which is present in the foreground and background of every biblical story. Consider that the Bible begins with marriage. Human beings, men and women created in the image of God, and presumed by the text, presumed by the text, to be married right from the start. And because of this coupling, man and woman, in this covenanted arrangement under God, they have the ability to produce life. The Bible begins with marriage. The Bible continues on with marriage. In the Old Testament, the primary metaphor for God's relationship with people, or Yahweh's relationship with Israel, is the covenant of marriage. It's also the image in the New Testament. We know some of the uh, the New Testament stories that highlight marriage. Jesus' first miracle, where he reveals his divine nature, is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Uh, But the principal image that I want to run with is Christ and the church, that Christ and the church are married. And the Bible concludes with marriage. The last chapters of Revelation are about a wedding in which humanity and God are married, bride and bridegroom, together, and this time together forever. Marriage is the message of the Bible. And so I want to have that as the backdrop in front of which we consider Ephesians chapter 5, because this chapter is not principally, not principally, about the dynamics between individual husbands and individual wives. Instead, it is giving us husbands and wives as an illustration of the profound mystery which is at the heart of the world. Today's text begins and concludes by talking about the church and how we are to submit to one another out of reverence for our higher power, our Christ. But it also concludes by talking about the church. In verse 32, this mystery, speaking of individual husbands and wives, is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In the middle of our text, we have a description of human marriage. But again, that is only to point out the grander dance. An individual marriage is like being in the ocean and cupping your hands together and filling them with water. The water is still part of the ocean, and reflects the nature of the ocean, but is itself not the entire story. The good news, of course, is this means that Ephesians 5 is for everybody, whether you're married, whether you're about to be married, whether you're not married, or whether you never want to be married. Ephesians 5 speaks to everybody, because it's your dance too. It's the dance of Christ and his church. And so we're moving now from the dance to the dance floor to examine the dancers. This is what it says, the text says in summary in verse 22 and then 25. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me say from the outset that this passage is often misread or mishandled. This text is often misread to refer to gender roles. It does no such thing. 
It is addressing marital roles. That is different than gender roles. This text is not about men and women ontologically. It's about husbands and wives. The reason that I mention this is because I've met many young men in serious and earnest dating situations that use the language of authority and leadership too frequently in their dating relationships. Friends, that's weird. <laughs> Overstepping your bounds. This is talking about husbands and wives. Incidentally, some people read this text and conclude errantly that women cannot hold high positions in secular governance. Again, not true. This is talking about husbands and wives, not men and women in their ontology. Others have mishandled this text. Some men disregard the latter portion, being attracted magnetically to the language of authority and headship. They like that. But they fail to read the second portion of the text, which is longer and far more strenuous than the first. And some women react to this passage because they've been mistreated by men who have abused this passage. And so, reasonably, they're on guard because people have abused this passage in order to abuse them. Sometimes we project onto Holy Scripture our own inward lives, and that is actually not fair and not what the author had in mind. And so again, we exegete scripture, but we also must let scripture exegete us and examine our own biases, our own baggage. It's been misread, it's been mishandled, but now that aside, let's look at what it says. First thing to notice, the dancers in marriage differ. They differ, of course, in gender, uh, because differing genders create an intimate, well, what this te text says, and all of scripture calls, a one-flesh union. A one flesh union. This is the testimony of Genesis, Jesus, and St. Paul. By its very nature, and I will use PG language here, that is referring to something very specific. I wrote it down so I would say it correctly. An anatomical complementarity. Wasn't that safe? An anatomical complementarity. That's what a one flesh union is. If you don't have that, you don't have a one flesh union. You may have something else that is sensual, but you don't have a one flesh union. And this one flesh union can create, as we've read in Genesis and we know through biology, life. It reflects the design of God in creation where God, who himself is differentiated as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, can, in his reflected image, create life. And so these dancers differ in gender. They also differ in what could be called contribution, marital contribution or marital emphasis. This is what Paul says to wives, who for him are the embodiment of the church for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The core principle is submission. Also, by the way, summarized at the end of this passage as respect. Paul seems to use that term synonymously uh, with submission. It has to do with deference. Deference, in this case, to what Paul calls a head or somebody who initiates the dance. There is a qualifier to this submission, as to the Lord. Now, there are two ways to read that. Both of them have some legitimacy. The first is that's a tall order. To defer to someone as we defer to the Lord himself, right? So the one that we are to hold in highest esteem. That is the kind of deference we're to show, wiser to show to husbands. But there's another way to view this. What Lord are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus and Jesus is not a tyrant. Jesus is not a woman hater. 
Jesus is not somebody who disregards women. In fact, Jesus was unique in his age for uplifting and dignifying women, who according to some rabbis in his day were only half human. Remember Josephus' famous prayer that he says daily, the Jewish historian Josephus, who thanks God that he is not a Gentile sinner nor a woman. And Jesus parts ways with that company and instead dignifies women, includes women in, the inner, in his inner circle, and also appears to a woman uh, first before any of his disciples at his resurrection. Submit your husbands as to the Lord, and that Lord happens to be Jesus, who has special respect for women. Now, some people can say, well, submission is weakness. That's becoming a doormat. That's saying to somebody, walk all over me. It's an invitation for abuse. Only if that word is mishandled. Only if that word is abused itself. Because submission is not just something that the church is called to do. Submission is something that Jesus himself did and embraced willingly. He did not see submission as weakness, but saw submission as strength. He said, I only do what I see my father doing. He was totally submissive to the father. And more than that, he says, nobody takes my life from me. I voluntarily lay it down, and I can voluntarily take it up. This charge is from my father. In other words, the charge to lay it down and to take it up was from his father, and he submitted willingly to do that. So Jesus did not see submission as weakness. And if Jesus, who is God on earth, did not see submission as weakness, but saw it as strength, uh, we might have to rethink our categories and rethink our assumptions related to that word. Mary, as well, if you want a, a feminine example of this, when given the announcement, you are going to be the vessel of redemption, says in the Greek, okay. She said, let it be unto me according to your word. Uh, and so wives get to embody this principle, which animates not only the church, but Christ himself, and to be the face of it. Husbands are given a slightly different task. Husbands are to embody Christ for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Core principle there is love. Notice Paul's instructions regarding the love that husbands are to have for wives are two-thirds longer than his instructions to the wives. It may suggest that he's more worried about husbands than he is about wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the qualifier, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Husbands are not called to deference. They're called to deference that is supercharged. They're called to sacrifice. Sacrifice. Not just to defer, to lay down everything, to lay down your prerogatives and your lives, and not for no reason, but because this is the model that Christ gave us, one, and number two, this will create well-being for your wife, because our jobs as husbands, much to the chagrin of some husbands, is not to recreate your wife in your own image so she satisfies your own needs, but instead is to cultivate a familial life in which your wife is encouraged to grow in Christ, because he is her Lord, you are not. This comes not only from St. Paul, but from Jesus himself, who redefines authority structures. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you be as one who serves. So the form of this love is 
Christocentric and cruciform. It means that the husband is willing to lay down his ego and his life for the well-being of the wife. And so we have the husband as the initiating personality in the marriage and the wife as the one who receives that. And both are united in a Christological vision. Now, three things to note about this passage. First, neither husbands nor wives are to coerce the other party into obedience. Notice Paul is writing directly to women and then directly to men. He never says this, men, get your wives to submit to you. This is to be voluntary. Second, the marital dynamics for wives and husbands, that is love and submission, are not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive to only women or men, wives or husbands. Remember, there is a biblical uh, and universal call for Christian mutual love. Jesus said this himself. He says, love one another as I have loved you. That has no reference to gender or position within a marriage. Similarly, there is a universal call to submission. We just read it right before this passage on marriage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. No qualifier there about husbands or wives. And so there is a sense in which men and women can show this uh, to the church and to one another. One is to embody the one principle more emphatically and the other to embody the other principle more emphatically. But they're both uh, beautiful and holy things to show one another and the church at large. Third, the shape of these dynamics, love and submission, are very similar. Deference and sacrifice. Both positions, both postures, means that there is an embracing of diminishment, personal diminishment, so that the other can benefit. And this runs entirely contrary to everything you will hear in self-esteem classes and about discovering your personal identity, uh, discovering the truest you. 80% of that stuff is crazy. Uh, Jesus talks about losing yourself. And that's actually the way you find yourself. You let go of your ego. You let go of your tired opinions. You let go of your rigidity. And that's how somebody else thrives. You let go. These principles, if we embody just a little bit of them, uh, demonstrate their own functional power. They overthrow evil. They overthrow relational evil. They overthrow exploitation. They overthrow power plays. They overthrow manipulative little games that men and women play with each other. And they overthrow the horrific abusive tendency that is found in some marriages. George MacDonald, uh, in one of his unpublished uh, sermons... He writes this, the one principle of hell is this, I am my own. I am my own king and subject. I am the center from which go out my thoughts. I am alpha and omega. My own glory is and ought to be my chief care. My ambition is to gather the regards of all. My kingdom is constructed of those I can bring to acknowledge my greatness over them. That needs to be entirely and forever abandoned and called for what it is, sin, the power of hell. Instead, consider the witness, the far more compelling witness of Holy Scripture found in marital love, more compelling than any tract you will ever find on a diner table. That marital love, sacrifice, and fidelity communicate that love, sacrifice, and fidelity are at the world's true core. 
It is more than just one man and one woman's story. It is the story of creation, the story of your redemption, the story, whether you realize it or not, of why you're here this morning. That is what marriage points to and communicates. And so that's something about the dance, something about the dancers. And now let me offer a word to the church and those who are married within it. Something about the church. The church consists of people who are married, widowed, and single. And I want to charge us this morning to regard marriage in higher esteem. It is not just a social contract. It is a God-ordained covenant. The covenant of marriage in the Bible is not adiaphora or a minor matter. It is not, in fact, debatable. Uh, It is not the rough equivalent of whether or not women should wear hats to church. Uh, It is the dance of the Holy Scripture. And we will always be tempted to extinguish the brightest lights of Scripture and to diminish the dance. And we will always find very good reasons to justify why we do whatever we do. We can diminish marriage through a variety of things. Uh, Christians, even recently, have diminished marriage through inconsistency and hypocrisy. Many American Christians rage, rage against the decay of the institution of marriage in, in the culture more broadly. As an aside, why Christians should expect non-Christians to adhere to a Christian teaching regarding marriage is beyond me. But I digress. Uh, yet many of these same Christians turn a blind eye to the, nev- the ever-growing cultural trend of serial divorce and turn another blind eye to politicians whom we somehow regard favorably and with blanket approval, even if they've boasted of adultery, sexual assault, and have been divorced multiple times. Such hypocrisy regarding our so-called love for the institution of marriage harms our witness, and it should. But also we diminish marriage through tenderly embracing and holding fast to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. We yearn for its approval, yearn to appear socially cutting-edge, yearn to uh, not be regarded as stupid or a fundamentalist, or trying to reject our own conception of our younger and more ignorant self, always fighting against the foil of the way we were ten years ago. Uh, The zeitgeist will always be morphing creational norms, distorting God's good image, And some Christians will seek to follow suit, attempting by means of dishonest biblical exegesis to justify from Scripture pretty much whatever we want. Uh, This is now the 18th time I've said this in the series, but I will keep saying it until we believe it, that what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Such a position, such a journey, such conformity is out of step with the dance of marriage as confessed in Holy Scripture We uphold marriage in Christ's church by upholding what Scripture teaches about marriage and by supporting those who are called to this remarkable and holy estate. But here's a word to the church as well. We also must, as the Church of Christ, be patient with those in our wider culture who come to the church from a variety of marital and familial forms. Following Jesus is a lifelong journey, and working out all of our false ideas about marriage, and all of us have them, can take quite a while. If God is patient with us, and he is, we also must be patient with everybody who walks through our doors. So that's that. Something to the church. A challenging word, I know. Now a little gospel. 
A word to married persons and the gospel that can be seen in them. Uh, Marriage is not a perfect dance, and we know this because of the fall. The fall introduces missteps, frustration, and tears on the dance floor. Here's what most married people don't know. At your marital ceremony, you were carrying with you a bucket of scorpions. When you arrived at the altar, you had in your hands a bucket of scorpions. And what happens in marriage is there is a sad and tragic exchange of scorpions. You have the power, as a husband or a wife, to irreparably harm your spouse. Most of the husbands and wives that I've counseled, I see time and time again similar issues, and so I'll just speak to them very briefly. Wives, the chief scorpion that is handed to the husband is disrespect. Disrespect. If you want to know how to poison your marriage, disrespect your husband, mock him, and do it in public. Do it slightly at first, little subtle put-downs. Make fun of him for being lazy on Saturdays. Little things like that, and let it build up over time. Or just mock men in general, because he is a man after all, and will probably receive some of that mockery into himself. Husbands, if you want to hand a scorpion to your wife, devalue her. Regard her as too emotional, while you, on the other hand, are quite rational. And that's better, right? Being rational. Create a deliberate contrast between you and your wife. Say about yourself, well, I am the more reasoned person. You know how hysterical she gets. Say things like that. Do it a lot. And have you ever found with really rational men how angry they get whenever things don't go their way in a rational manner? Guess what, men? Anger is an emotion. (laughs) You're acting emotionally at that moment. And And anger is a cheap emotion which tends to harm people. And so devalue your wife. Reduce her in her personality. Reduce her in her person by simply charging her with being too emotionally charged. Or if your wife says to you, honey, I think we need counseling, make fun of it. Say, I don't need the help, you do. Or instead, mock the whole notion of counseling. Make excuses for why you don't want to go. I don't want to trust myself with a stranger or some secularist who's going to poison my mind. But if your wife says we need help, A sacrificial gesture would be to say, okay, let's get the help that we need. Even if I can't see the need, you do, and I regard that as important. It's a challenging word. It's a challenging word for me, too. I am a husband and a father and a mediocre one, working on it, but mediocre. Uh, One of the things that I have learned over the years is that deference is the way to freedom. Deference, not defense. Lay down all your arms. To hell with that. It's not helping anybody. But wives and husbands share something that they do together. They exchange the scorpions of competition. This is what Paul Zoll writes, the Anglican theologian. Christianity assumes a bottomless need on the part of every single man and woman. It says to both husbands and wives, you are both at fault in everything. And the fault is in your chemistry and in your head. We are under the power of sin, Romans 3. And the chief sin in marriage is competition. The man thinks that his difficult and demanding job deserves more credit than his wife's needlepoint shop or her raising of the children day after day while he is at work. On the other hand, the woman may believe that only if she is chairing the board of Goldman Sachs can she bring credibility and equality to the marriage. 
Unless she is ramming her head against the glass ceiling, her weight in the partnership is not equal. The wife is just as enslaved as the husband. From the standpoint of grace, both partners are equally mistaken. The best thing that could happen is that they both fall from these stupendously misconceived ideas of prize winning and land together on the same hill of sand, like pole vaulters who have failed to clear the bar. Then they could observe their common failure and laugh. Grace demolishes the human idea of success. It cheerily mocks it. Do you remember the popular song from the 1970s entitled The Pina Colada Song? The singer wanted out of his marriage so badly that he answered a want ad in the newspaper for someone who liked pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. What happened when the two finally arranged to meet? Surprise! It was his wife. It was her husband. The words of the song finish up this way. It was my own lovely lady, and she said, Oh, it's you! And we laughed for a moment, and I said, I never knew! (laughs) The unsatisfied partners are both looking for the same thing. They just don't know it. They fall down from an Olympian height of marked judgment, laugh for a minute, and begin again. They begin again from self-knowledge, humility, and, in fact, high hopes. How do we fix this thing? I don't know. There's a different path for everybody, but I think it always begins the same way. How do you undo 10 years of damage in a marriage? How do you undo 40 years of damage and pain? How do you crack the door to let the light in? Offer your spouse, maybe on the way home today, an apology. Maybe you should say you're sorry. You're sorry for diminishing their light. You're sorry for not showing any deference. You're sorry for fighting every single inch of the way. You're sorry for resisting. You're sorry for your rage. Sorry for your anger. Sorry for your manipulation. It's not a bad place to begin with wholesale repentance. Because diminishment is the pathway to liberty. And if diminishment is met by absolution, then life's dance floor is laden with brightest gold. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Come your way. Oh, I once was loved.